I had a friend who preached through the first 20 chapters of the book of Exodus and then stopped. And I can understand why one would do that, because picking up from where we are and moving forward, it's easy to get a sense of the book is being repetitive. I hope to dispel that notion as we move forward, but this morning we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 to 26, and our complementary passage will be Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 to 29. So with your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 12, and in honor of God's word, please stand. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 25, hear God's word. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 22 and continuing in the reading of God's word. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make gods for yourselves, gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed. On it. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, so Lord, would you speak that word to us by your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So the United States leads the world in a lot of different categories, some of which we can be thankful for, some of which we ought to be thoroughly ashamed of. And one of those categories is this. This morning, what generally we recognize as Father's Day, 18.3 million children woke up in a home without a father. That's 25% of all children under the age of 18. The United States is the world leader in fatherlessness. This one issue of having a father at home is the single greatest issue, more than ethnicity, 
more than geography, more than income. It is the single greatest determiner of both generational poverty and incarceration. If you want to tackle poverty and if you want to tackle the problem of incarceration, you must address the issue of fatherlessness. Now, it's easy for us who are in the church and predominantly do have two-parent homes and predominantly have fathers and mothers who are trying their level best, it's easy for us to point the finger out there and to say, wow, what a mess. But beloved, the problem of fatherlessness is a problem that you and I are guilty of as well. Because you see, our fathers either become like Denethor, who forgot that he was simply the steward of Gondor. Denethor got it in his head that he was the king. And because he was the king, he ends up on his own funeral pyre. Denethor forgot that he was a steward. And if that's not our problem, having tyrants in the home who forget that they are under another's authority, the other extreme is just as bad. We've got a bunch of pathetic, spineless cowards who run like rabbits at the first sign of encroaching adulthood. At the first sign that they might have to put up their Xbox for a while. At the first sign that they may not get their fishing boat because their child or their wife comes first. Cowards, spineless, grown boys who have never grown up. Now, this obviously is driven by the news of the week as well as the issue of the day, but it's a legitimate opening illustration because it comes to the very heart of our text. You see, from this point on, beginning in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 22, and continuing on until Numbers chapter 9, there are six sections of God giving law with a narrative, usually a theophany, an appearance of God as the great exclamation point at the end of the section. Six sections that can be divided pretty easily into the various types of laws that are emphasized. We'll be looking at those in the coming weeks. This morning I want to look at what we would consider the preface to this covenant treaty that's going to cover a lot of the rest of the Pentateuch. This covenant treaty that is given there at Mount Sinai. God, in giving His law to the people, in speaking to the people through His servant Moses, 
God is establishing himself as the authority and calling these broken men and women back to what the garden was supposed to be, what Adam and Eve were supposed to have done in the garden, how they were supposed to have exercised justice, how they were supposed to have cared for their creation and for their fellow man, and how they were supposed to remember that they themselves were stewards, that a trust had been given to them. The entire history of Israel's sin, and I would go further and I would say the entire history of the sin of mankind can be laid right at the feet of bad fathers. Bad fathers, whether it's a king in Israel who becomes a despot, forgetting that he himself is under the Pentateuch, or whether it is a man in his house who thinks that he is lord of the manor, when he is called clearly to love his wife as Christ loved the church and lay down his life for her. Fathers who rule over their children and in doing so exasperate them. As Paul clearly says in Romans chapter 6, they are not to do. Fathers who have either turned into petty tyrants or have bought into the narcissistic, childish mentality of finding your true self, of going with what your feelings are, of following where your heart leads. God in giving the law, and now God in giving these applications of the law, is re-establishing or reminding us of what has always been established, I should better say. He's reminding us of what has always been established, and that is that He is God of heaven and earth, and all rule is simply a reflection of His own. It's evil to the degree that it badly reflects His own. It's righteous to the degree that it properly reflects His own. And so that really is the summary of the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and the first chapter of Numbers. We're going to see this working out, but it begins here with this application of what really is the first table of the law. And that is simply this. God is absolutely holy. And you and I must remember that we are His servants. We are absolutely under His authority. As I mentioned in the reading of the law, that's easy to forget. Because it just doesn't feel natural to us. I mean, a person can be self-disciplined to get up and go to the gym every day. A person can be self-disciplined 
to accomplish their work each week without somebody looking over their shoulder and seeing how many hours they're putting in and whether they're really doing it. You could be self-disciplined in a lot of areas, but how is it that we can be so self-disciplined in these other areas and yet so ill-disciplined in our duty as Christian fathers, in our duty as Christian husbands, in our duty as Christians. So ill-disciplined in this core issue of God is the authority. And you and I are to live accordingly. You and I are to bow or bend the knee. We are to bow the head. (laughs) We are to kneel before that authority. And that's why I think God emphasizes his absolute holiness here in this passage. It's interesting to me, and by the way, for those who are note-taking type of people, I don't have any enumerated points on this. Uh, This is going to be just a focus on these verses and thoughts that come out of those that really serve as preparation for the rest, uh, for the rest of this passage. But it's interesting, there are three prohibitions that are in this text. As we read the text, did you hear those three prohibitions? The first is, you're not to make any idols. No silver, no gold, don't make a representation of God. Well, that's just a repetition of the second commandment that he's already given to us. But the second is, if you're going to build an altar to me, don't make it of carved stone. You either build it of earth, or you build it of field stone. Because I do not want you saying that you have added to the beauty of my worship. I'm not interested in how beautifully you can carve an altar. I'm not interested in how nicely you can dovetail the joints together. It's not your call. It's my worship. And you're going to worship me the way that I tell you to worship me. And the focus of it is not your artisanal talent that produces this stunning work of art that is called an altar. The focus of it is that blood sacrifice. That's the point of my worship. And I don't want you mucking it up by trying to dress it up and make it something that's more appealing and more dignified. You will worship me focused the way that I tell you to focus. The third prohibition is an interesting one. You're not to build steps to the altar so that you may mount upon it and your nakedness be exposed. Now, there's a lot of commentators that have a lot of reasons why that prohibition is in there. One of the arguments is that it was a very common practice for ancient idolatry for the priest to go into this trance because he was in communion with the god or the goddess and that they would be completely naked and that there are all of these these sexual uh, ideas that are gathered around worship, the fertility rites and this sort of thing. That, that may very well be. 
That may very well be what is behind the, the, the command here. But at the very least, what we can say is that God wants people to approach His worship and to approach His place of worship very conscious and very intentional that they are going to be treating this with reverence. This is not a fertility ritual by any stretch. But also, this is something that is to be treated reverentially. I am not, to put it in modern days, I'm not mooning God. That is inappropriate. That is not going to happen. And God says, none of that. I want you, when you approach my altar, to be dressed modestly, to be dressed respectfully, and to remember who it is that you're approaching. No idols. No immodest approach. And no dressing up the worship. No dressing up the altar. And what this really does... is So, so before I move on from that, I want to draw this other observation of this. Did you notice the reasons in here? Did you see why we're not supposed to make idols? Did you see why we're not supposed to build altars out of carved stones? Did you see why we're not supposed to expose our nakedness upon the altar? If you did, you're a better exegete than I am because I didn't see it. He simply says, do it. He's not stooping to explain himself to me. He's not stooping to explain himself to the people of Israel. Because the explanation, just like a father, is enough. And that is, I told you. When our children were young, we used to have a routine that when we told our children, I bet the children of mine who are here can tell you right now (laughs) exactly what it was. When we told our children to do something, you're to go wash the dishes. The first words out of their mouth were, yes, mommy, I will be happy to. May I ask why, please? And if they wanted to push back, they were certainly welcome to ask why we wanted them to wash the dishes. Don't have a problem with that. I'm not overlording them. I'm not trying to keep them under my thumb. They're rational human beings. And generally, I have a rational reason why I'm asking them to do something. And so I tell them, go do the dishes. And they say, I'll be happy to. That's the first words that need to come out of their mouth. Then they can ask me, may I ask why, please? And sometimes it was just because, no, you can't. I told you to go do the dishes. Just do it. I'm not interested in having a conversation about why you should do the dishes. That is not on the table right now. Most of the time, though, I hope my kids would would say, (laughs) most of the time when they said, may I ask why, please, it was because I, you know, had some rational reason for what they needed to do, and I would tell them, this is why you need to do it, and then I would expect that they would comply. But the fact that I issued a command in and of itself was enough. They can ask me why, but I don't owe them an explanation. Would you please go wash the dishes because 
your mother sprained her wrist and she's unable to wash the dishes as she normally does. And so therefore, and you know, I've got to do this other stuff and therefore we need an extra. I don't need to go into all that. I'm your dad. Wash the dishes. And that's what God is doing here. See that. Do you see that in the text? He's not interested in saying, listen, you know, here's the problem with idolatry. I understand that you expect the golden calf to be a physical representation of my own power in bringing you out of of Egypt. I understand that this is not an idol that you're worshiping. You think this is a physical representation of one of my attributes and all of that. The calf is not the thing. If anything, it needs to be a lamb because the lamb is going to be the image that I'm going to give, blah, 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 blah. You don't see any of that anywhere in Scripture. You don't see any reason why you shouldn't have a carved idol or a carved uh, altar. You don't see any reasons given. You see, I'm God. I'm the one who blew up Pharaoh and all his armies. I'm the one who blew up Egypt. I'm the one who parted the Red Sea. I'm the one who feeds you. I'm the one who protects you. I'm the one who gives you water in the desert. And I'm the one who tells you, walk in my ways. And beloved, that's enough. That is enough. Because if there's anything that underlies the dysfunction of the spirit of our day, it is a rejection of authority. We reject authority because we see abuses of it. We reject human authority because we see the imperfections of that human authority. But in terms of rejecting the imperfections, in rejecting the abuses, We've gone into rejecting authority itself. And God will not have that. God is in control. And he establishes that clearly before he's going to go into these judicial laws of how we treat one another. It's also interesting in this passage, he says... He gives this promise that he will come to you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come to you and bless you. Do you hear that promise? It gets expanded later. This is what we might call the health and wealth promise. God is going to come and he's going to bless And he means that in very physical terms. The promised land is regularly referred to as a land flowing with milk and honey. The blessings of God are, are abundant. And they're physical blessings. So what keeps us from saying, God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be healthy. You just need to reach out and claim your blessing. Because God is a God of blessing. Right? It's what he says. He says, wherever my name is remembered, I'm going to come to you and bless you. And I don't think that that blessing is purely a spiritual thing. I think it's very, very tangible. So where do these health and wealth preachers get it wrong? 
What's the basis of God blessing? On what foundation does this blessing come? Obedience. You obey what I tell you to do. If we were modernizing this, we might say Moses and the children of Israel said, yes, God, we'll be happy to. May we ask why, please? And God would respond, nope. (laughs) I'm not giving you any reasons. I'm not arguing with you. I'm telling you, don't make idols, don't carve my altars, and be modest in your approach to my altars and to my worship. That's what it means to be under authority. It's what it means to be a steward. It's what it keeps us from becoming tyrants or bunny rabbits that run away. And beloved, this is the battle. Young men, particularly. Young men often are at the forefront of desiring to change the world. Make an impact in the world. Typically, I realize I'm being general, and for every generality, there's an exception to the generality, and I'm not going to try to parse this down. We're already past noon. Just stick with me on the generality. (laughs) Generally speaking, young men want to change the world. They want to impact the world. They want to make a difference in the world. Generally speaking, young ladies want to nurture the home. They want to provide a place of refuge and rest, and they want to see households and relationships strong. But when I see people running away from the spouse of their youth, it's more often than not a guy who turns 40, who turns 45, who turns whatever age, and we used to say he'd go buy a red convertible. He would have his crisis, his youth crisis, and he'd go and do something wild and crazy, like buy a red convertible or, horribly, run away from his family. When I counsel men who are in their 30s and 40s, I think the most common thing that I hear is a sense of, I'm just going through the motions. I just get up in the morning, I go to work, I work all day long at a job that I feel is kind of meaningless, and I come home at night and I watch TV, and life is supposed to be more than this. I I feel lost, and I feel like I'm a hamster in a wheel, and the wheel itself is kind of boring. It's kind of repetitive. The angst that men most often feel is a lack of battle, a lack of conflict, a lack of warrior opportunities. Beloved, here's the battle. Right here is the battle. Young men, whether you're married or not, your battle Your warfare, and this is barring the language of Paul. This isn't me making this up. This is barring Paul's language. It's barring language throughout the scripture. 
David says, God trains my hands for battle. He is my shield, my stronghold. And as we'll see, it's not simply David physically fighting. It's his fight against sin. It's his fight. There's your battle. This is the pilgrim's progress. This is the conflict that is placed before you. Don't tell me how you want to go and impact Sterling for Jesus if you can't get your family in church. Don't tell me that you want to go and change the world around you if you can't sit down on a daily basis and shepherd your wife and shepherd your children. This is what it means to live under authority, and this is the battle. This is where the conflict is. This is where the glory is. The most difficult thing you will ever do in your life is not run a marathon or an Ironman or even climb Mount Everest. The most difficult thing you will ever do in your life is to be a husband and a father, to be a mother, to be a wife, to be a respectful and obedient child, to be a parent who does not lord it over the wife or the children or the husband or whatever. That's the most difficult thing you'll ever do. I promise you. (laughs) I promise you. That is a battle. That is a war. If you see, if you see the intensity of this call, if you see the intensity of, of the battle, then you almost have to walk away from this in despair. This holy God, this God who says, I am in control. You will do what I tell you to do. You are under my authority. And then we see all of the things that he'll tell us to do. Beginning in chapter 21 and moving on. All of these things that you and I are called to do. If you look at them, you'll run away. If you look at them, you say, I can't. And beloved, this is where the gospel comes in. The The message of the gospel is that in Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, in you, united to him in that, in you, his child, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, seated with him in heavenly places, you have already won. The victory is complete. He is the authority. He is reigning. He is governing all things. And you and I are part of it. You and I, the more that we walk in harmony with God, the better we reflect it. But even in our failures and foolishness, we're still united my mistakes as a father, my mistakes as a husband, don't undermine the biblical father, the biblical husband. My mistakes don't tell you what a dad should be. 
any more than my successes tell you what a dad should be. My mistakes don't act as your standard. My successes don't act as your standard. God alone does.